I'm Bon Q, the host of Design Lab, a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. If you want to reach out to me, check me out on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U and on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Our guest today is Dr. Katie Godian. Katie is a design consultant and senior research associate at the Helen Hamlin Center for Design, which is an inclusive design center based at the Royal College of Art in London. Katie is neurodivergent and for the last 16 years has collaborated with neurodivergent people to explore ways to make their everyday lives comfortable and enjoyable. She has worked within a range of contexts, supported living accommodation, mental health hospitals, garden design, healthcare services, developing design standards for the built environment and street design. Katie speaks not as an expert, but as a person with lived experience and the privilege of collaborating with lots of different people. Check out our website at designlabpod.com. There you can do two things. You can subscribe to our newsletter so that whenever a new episode drops, you'll get an email from our producer, Rob Legisi, and he'll send you his reflections on the show. There's also a link where you can submit your favorite design fail in healthcare. We want to hear these stories of how you've been frustrated by the healthcare system. Support Design Lab by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and for giving us five stars and subscribing to our show. Now my conversation with Dr. Katie Godian. Dr. Katie Godian, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you for having me. Katie, tell us about your current role as a designer at the Helen Hamlin Center for Design. That's right. So I'm a senior research associate at the center. It's also part of the Royal College of Art in London. And I think I've been there maybe 13 years, quite a while. And I'm particularly interested and I've worked on several projects involving neurodivergent people. And the center is all about inclusive design. So it's exploring ways to design with people and working within a range of contexts as well. So it could be supported living, gardens, et cetera. I love that. We had your director, Rama Giraro, on the show way back in episode 36. If listeners want to make a footnote of that, that was a great episode talking about what the center does. And you had a couple of terms there that I would love to unpack of inclusive design you said and neurodivergent yeah can you talk about what it means first to be neurodivergent yeah i always find like unpacking words tricky because everyone has different takes on words yeah uh-huh. so my take i'm not saying this is the take on neurodivergent is people like myself i'm dyspraxic and dyslexic It might also include people who are autistic, have ADHD, who experience, whose mind and brains might think differently to the majority of people. Mm. So that's how I would explain it. Mm. And that's because we've, in medicine, have normalized or we label certain behaviors as normal and certain behaviors are as abnormal. And that's always frustrating in medicine. Like who gets to define what's normal in the first place? Like what's normal anatomy, you know, yeah. what's normal pathophysiology and what's abnormal. And absolutely, it's always like, I was like, do we really know what normal is and what's abnormal? Yeah. 
Because a term used for people that might not be neurodivergent is neurotypical, but mm. then that feels very kind of a strange word as well. So these words, I find it all quite tricky, these words. Super tricky. Yeah. Yeah. You said inclusive design. What does that mean? Again, I think it's something that might mean differently to different people. But for me, inclusive design, what's important about inclusive design is the process. So making sure if it's a design project that people are involved in the design process. And it's not just a designer designing something for someone, but actually participants are involved in that. And even in the design of the brief right through the whole mm. process. What are the benefits to inclusive design? Like if we're not part of that group that you're designing for, does that help others? Yeah. So I would say the actual process of involving people can be really positive for those involved. People can feel very included, their their voice is being heard, their ideas are being heard. And then the final outcome could be really relevant and useful, maybe compared to a design outcome that was just designed by one person mm. for another person. So it's about understanding people, I think, inclusive design yeah. as well. Can you give some examples of how you use inclusive design in your practice as a designer? Yeah, so... I could give you an example of when we designed a garden, a shared garden space for and with nine autistic adults in supported living accommodation. And these residents were involved right at the beginning because we really needed to understand what their likes and dislikes were, what their sensory likes and dislikes were, how they might want to use their own garden. Mm. And so through workshopping, shadowing, interviews, we were then able to come up with a design that hopefully was enjoyable for them. Mm, I love that. And it's so you probably end up getting a design that's a lot more customized for that user. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the challenges of doing this? Because it seems it seems kind of hard to do. And that's not typically done in the type of like research and work that many, many of us engage in. Yeah. I think the challenges is, you know, I've worked on projects where I've had the luxury of time. So I've, I've been able to develop trust, build connections, create comfortable space where I get to know participants fairly well. And I think outside of where I work, I know there's projects that are so fast paced that it's, you don't necessarily have the luxury of time to, you know, really get to know somebody. So I would say that's quite a challenge of mm. inclusive design mm. and to avoid bringing people in tokenistically, but meaningfully. I think that is a big challenge, actually. And obviously with that also, it might be more costly, potentially, if you want to involve more people in the design process. Mm. I often feel that we bring in people at, too late of a stage in, in, the, yeah. in the design process, right? Like the design has been done already, whether you're designing like a product or services, and then you bring in the group that you're designing for kind of like at the end. So it's like, oh, well, what do you think about this? We've been working on it for months or a couple of years. Give us some feedback. 
but that's yeah. not what you're doing, right? You're bringing in no. at, like, can you describe <laughs> how your process, your methodology is different? Oh, so I guess I could give you an example of a project where, you know, I had no idea where it was going to go. And the project, again, was working with autistic adults who were in support of living accommodation. And the charity wanted us to explore ways in which the people they support could be more meaningfully engaged in everyday tasks, such mm. as washing up, hoovering, washing their clothes, etc. So then, you know, I got to know some of the residents, spent time with them, and then recognized that actually a lot of the people I work with may not really understand what a vacuum cleaner actually is for. Mm. So I understand, you know, I use a vacuum cleaner to hoover up because I don't want a dirty floor. But some of the people I'm working with didn't really necessarily have that sort of relationship with a vacuum cleaner. Mm -hmm. So the project ended up really about exploring how to make these activities more meaningful to the people I was working with. And by understanding, again, the sensory likes and dislikes, their interests, we were then able to connect some of that to the act of vacuum cleaning. So, for example... One guy really enjoys bubbles. He loves washing up because of the bubbles. Mm. So we designed a vacuum cleaner that created bubbles as you vacuum clean. And he was very happy to vacuum clean. And the same with the using a washing machine. One person I worked with loved watching the washing machine spin. Mm. And so to create a more meaningful relationship for him in the act of washing his clothes, we created a disc that you suction on the inside of the washing machine and it creates different visual effects. Mm. So it's an adding a step into the process of washing your clothes that might be enjoyable for him. Mm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> I love all this. I just thought of how in medicine, we call patients non-compliant when they don't take medications or they don't do the treatments that are prescribed to them. I myself am a non-compliant, I have air quotes when I'm speaking, <laughs> myself as a non-compliant patient, but I'm thinking, well, a lot of the treatments that we prescribe don't take into account of the, of the needs of that, of that individual. And mm. so I think what the process that you engage in that, I wish we did that more in medicine. You know, because I think often we have a one size fits all solution and we just try yeah. to force that upon a population. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, something I've learned along the way is also is I think why I've sort of struggled also with the word inclusive design is it's often about like thinking about ways to include people in essentially a neurotypical world. But for me, for some of the people I've worked with, it's about how to enter their their way of experiencing their environment and what they like to do so that I can really learn and understand that. Again, I hope that makes sense. Yeah. What are some of the, can you share some of the methods that you employ of being able to step into their shoes? Yeah. I think I read in my, wrote in my bio about, you know, I've learned a lot about empathy and mm -hmm. I started working space in some ways because I'm neurodivergent maybe there is that level of empathy because I've always mm -hmm. felt a bit different and experienced things a bit differently to a lot of other people but when I've 
been working with people who really experience things a lot differently. It's been really difficult to, you know, understand how to empathize. And so a way of coming, of sort of trying to explore that was actually just sort of engaging in the things that the people I was visiting like to do. So mm. one person I spent a lot of time with used to like meticulously ripping faces of people out of magazines. And so we'd sit together and do that for a long time. And that was our way to connect. And I guess mm-hmm. I should also say a lot of people I've worked with don't have much verbal speech. Mm-hmm. So materials making has also been a really great way to try and connect and communicate with some of the people I've been working with. How did you get into this type of work and research that you do? Can you describe your personal journey as a designer in this space? Yeah, I think like looking really far back, my mum used to be, we're from Guernsey in the Channel Islands, a really beautiful island. And my mum worked in what was then called a special needs school, the Mm -hmm. only school on the island. And I spent a lot of time with the children she was working with after school. Mm -hmm. And there I'd always be quite interested in the children because they seemed so different to me. But it was also quite interesting for me. And I'd play with them and it was really good fun. And then I ended up working for a charity in what's called a snoozerland. Or multi-sensory environment. This is after doing textiles degree at Brighton, where I designed sculptures for people who are visually impaired. And so, wait, so you you studied sculpture? Textiles, but <laughs> they were kind of textile sculptures. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty unique path. Yeah, sorry, I'm splitting uh, around. That's what I tend that's to do. Cool. No, that's cool. So yeah, after after that, I mean, I ended up working Jim Henson's Crete shop, actually, which is quite interesting. Wait, what? what's that? The guy who invented the Muppets. Oh, the Muppets guy. What? Yeah. yeah. I, I love the Muppets. So I know it was an amazing place. And then sadly, everyone was made redundant. But but then I think what took me really into this direction was working, like I said, in multi-sensory environments. And their, their environments designed to stimulate the senses, but where it allows a person to have control over what sounds they want, what colors, lights they want. And so I'd work in a van in a room with people who had maybe different sensory processing abilities. And it was there that I really could see firsthand how the environment can have a profound impact on a person Mm. and their level of enjoyment and comfort. And then I also remember working with an autistic boy at a, a kid's holiday club. And he was really anxious and I had no idea why. And we found out, we called his mum and he said, has he got a paper clip in his hand? And we said no. So I gave him a paper clip and he immediately relaxed. Mm. And as a designer, I just found that really interesting because I only associate paper clips really with holding papers together, unlocking locks, not that I do that. (laughs) But for this boy, a paper clip gave him a lot of comfort and support and I found that really interesting. I continue to find that interesting, meeting people that might afford things differently to the majority of people or appreciate something about an object such as the washing machine in terms of watching it spin rather than seeing it as a functional object to wash clothes. And yeah, that that led me to do textiles again at the Royal College of Arts to critique these multisensory environments. And then um, then on to the Hen and Hammond Centre was fortunate to work in the space of autism 
and do a PhD. So that's quite a real short, muddled well, description. Yeah. <laughs> what was your PhD in? The PhD was, it was exploring how autistic people with limited verbal speech, how they experience the home environment. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there's, at the time, there really wasn't much research out there that was focused on design and autism and the environment. Yeah. And, you know, from my days of working in multisensory environments, I could really see how design could have a really positive impact, how the environment, how it's designed can have an impact on a person's comfort. Do you work with architects around designing the built environment for giving the inhabitants of that environment like a better sense of control? Yeah, a little bit, not loads. We we did develop sort of built environment guidelines. I think a really important project that did come out recently was with the British Standards Institution who develop guidelines for the built environment for architects, oh, for example. Wow. And they've never had guidelines that consider neurodivergence. Uh, And so we did a scoping study to prove that there is a need for something like this, that people who are neurodivergent may experience the environment differently. And so it's really great that there's now, it's called a PAS, publicly available specification, and it gives suggestions or guidance on what to consider in terms of the built environment for neurodivergent people. But these things are really tricky because I just, this is why I find it really difficult to talk about this around this space because it's really difficult to generalize because everyone is so different. I always get asked in conferences what color do autistic people like. People really want a definite answer and I can't give that. Yeah. You know, what it's like asking what color do all humans like? Is there one color? And and like, there isn't. So, Uh and this is why I find the space difficult to talk about because it is very difficult to generalize yeah you have a project that you're currently undertaking around inclusive design for streets is that right yeah it's a a project funded by the reese jeffries foundation and it's really inspired by a bit like the design guidelines that there's very little knowledge on how neurodivergent people experience streets in the public realm. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a scoping study to really explore how neurodivergent people experience streets and whether there's anything design-wise that we can do to make that experience better if there needs to be as well. So we're right in the middle of it. So I don't necessarily have too much to share with you right now. Well, I haven't heard of research being done in this space. There's a lot, lot of body of evidence. There's not a lot. I think, you know, I'm also guilty of actually focusing a lot on the built environment, which uh-huh. in some ways is a space that you can have a bit more control of. But the yeah. minute you step outside, there's so many variables, unpredictable variables like people, dogs, sounds, sight, you know, mm-hmm. colors, shadows. So, I mean, I, I've met one autistic person that gets really scared of shadows cast by trees on pathways because he mm-hmm. perceives them as solid, you know, blocks or holes. So there's all sorts of things that we may not have considered that would be something to consider. I've seen some research out there around designing spaces in hospitals to be better suited with people with autism because it's such a chaotic environment and anyone who goes into a hospital who is a patient 
just feels like this like loss of control and it's a it's a scary place and often we're entering in there as as human suffering so you take us in our in a worst time of life you put us in a stressful chaotic environment you subject us to sleep deprivation and it's it's stressful for anybody then i'm curious to know have you engaged in research in this space around the built environment of healthcare settings or do you do you know of folks doing work in this space yeah a project i'm just finishing actually is with a charity called heart and soul in london and it's a collaboration also with the nhs in greenwich and it's been an amazing project two years and it's exploring how to potentially improve health and social care services for people with learning disabilities and autistic mm. people and yeah it's really highlighted some of the challenges not just the environment but also the social challenges and I think communication has come up as a really big thing that mm-hmm. you know right from when you get the letter or having to make a phone call to book an appointment all those things are just completely difficult for people to actually do even before you enter the hospital yeah. even as so. someone who is a physician I had my my daughter had to get surgery on her knee and that process was just like confusing and stressful. And I know yeah. the system, I, I work in the system. Yeah, there's been, it's highlighted a lot of challenges and jargon has been a big thing, like mm. the use of jargon, words that nobody understands. Yeah. So, yeah. What are some practical things that we can do in hospitals to design them better? Like if you had an unlimited budget, like what would you do? It's like, this is like, this is like easy. This is like step one. This is a basic thing that, that we can do. Well, I would say step one is training for people working Uh, hospitals, you know, so there's more understanding and empathy around people that may be sensitive to what's going on in the environment or may communicate differently. I think a big thing that came out from this project was when healthcare practitioners don't always look at the person, but their carer when they're speaking. And that just doesn't make that person feel very good. Oh yeah. We look at the computer screen. Oh yeah. That's a good <laughs> like, are we supposed to do that now? We we'll look really at people in the eye. No, I yeah, know. you're right. I, I hate that. Even with me, I've, I've had experiences. I'm pretty healthy, but as a patient, and I'm like thinking, what? The doctor's not even like looking at me. They're just like looking at their screen. I felt like a little dehumanized. Yeah, true. Even. And I know what's going on. Like I was like, yeah, I know your day is busy. And like you got to chart and do all this stuff. But <laughs> listen, I'm a human. Like, can you look at me, please? I felt like it just wasn't a good experience. And I and I was just like laughing at myself because like, I'm like, I know what's going on. But it still does not feel good. Yeah, definitely. There's so much. I think the waiting room has proven to be really problematic. Waiting, not knowing how long to wait, what information to look at to know when their appointments come up. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of confusion, anxiety in the waiting room, particularly yeah. as well. But yeah, you know, I've seen before great communication where somebody has received information and with visual cues of the environment that they're going into, what to expect. So if there's any information about the space that a person can look at beforehand, like whether it's a short video of the space, that they, they're prepared for what they're about to enter is always really, really useful. 
do you use emerging technologies like VR or AR to help out in this space? Because I've seen a lot of that and I yeah, have not, I have not used it, but like, but it just seems like there's so much chatter about VR. Yeah, I haven't. So I don't feel like I can really speak about that. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about some other research projects that you've been working on or, or have worked on in, in this space. Another project I worked on was it was for in a mental health hospital oh. and it was for essentially it was working with men who were autistic and were defendants. That's the term that was used. So instead of going to prison, they were in a mental health hospital mm. and it was a very high secure ward environment. And that project was about exploring how to make their space where they live, their ward more homely mm. and it was really difficult yeah. <laughs> because there's so much health and safety regulations in these spaces I mean you can't even have a Christmas tree you know yeah and I think it was a project where I really had to manage expectations of the people I was working with I did lots of engagement got on really well with the the people in that space and I think it's a project where the design process, I think, really showed to have been benefit. I think the people I was working with don't normally get asked, like, yeah. how do you want your space to be? So I think just having that conversation, wow. listening to what their voices and what they might want, their ideas was, I think they really enjoyed that. Yeah. But then whether those ideas could actually be realized is another thing. But I think the engagement side of it was really, really, it was really great. That's so important to do. It sounds so basic when we're talking, but often that does not happen in the design process of simply asking people, what do they want? And yeah, exactly. What are some of the challenges with that? Because I imagine with some of the funders or some of the organizations that you work with, they want to move fast and this process is not fast. It's slow. Yeah, I think, you know what, I think I've just been really fortunate to work with charities and organizations who already have a real understanding of some of the people I'm working with and that things do take time. So, for example, this project I just mentioned, exploring health and social care services, the first year was spent just building relationships. Mm. And that was just amazing that that was the priority for the first year. And then the second year went into the design process. So, yeah, I've been really fortunate. Yeah. Do you work with healthcare professionals routinely? Because I would love to work with you on, <laughs> on a project, you know, which people with your skill set would be part of the care team in hospitals. That would be amazing. Yeah, like absolutely. The design project working that I just mentioned wouldn't have been possible without also involving health and social care practitioners. And then another project was with Virgin Care, looking at redesigning the autism diagnostic system because mm. there's such a lengthy wait for diagnosis. And it's proven to be speaking to parents and healthcare practitioners that it's quite a complicated process. So that was a project. To get a diagnosis of autism. How long does that take? Well, I'm not an expert on this, but when I was doing that project, it was two to three years. What? Yeah, it was long. Oh and my gosh. Yeah. And I think there was a lot 
from the research, speaking to parents, it was just the actual process was not very transparent. Mm. So families won't really understand where they were in the process and what that looked like. And I think just being able to visualize that gave a lot of reassurance. So, and that was really interesting because the diagnostic process does involve lots of different professionals from different areas. And that project was was able to bring people together and actually talk together about it, which mm. may not always happen necessarily. What advice do you give to someone who wants to get into the type of work that you do? We have a lot of folks who are students or changing careers listening or folks in the healthcare space or design backgrounds who may be interested in this space? Wow. I'd say, well, for me, I think my experience working for a charity in sensory environments sort of spurred me to really want to work in this space. And that enabled me really fortunately to explore that through design at the Royal College of Art. Mm. So, you know, there, there are really interesting charities out there doing really interesting things. So even if on a voluntary basis, you can like connect with them and maybe there's a bit of an avenue you can explore. I think that would be really good. My last and one of my favorite questions I ask to each guest is if one of our persons from the listening audience were to come visit you, where would you take them out to eat? Yeah. Well, it depends what their budget was. <laughs> <laughs> but if you want a really good treat, there's an amazing restaurant called The Jetty in a place called Mudderford, right on the water. It's beautiful. And if you like fish, it's amazing. But also you can just go down the road and buy some fish and chips and go and sit on the beach, which is 10 minutes from where I am, which would be equally as amazing. So I'd recommend both those options. Love it. Well, I love seafood and I got to go check it out. Thanks for <laughs> coming on the show. It was, it was great to learn from you and really I'm a fan of the, of the work that you are doing. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. If you want to learn more about Katie's work and research, check out the show notes and subscribe to our newsletter. Design Lab is produced by Rob Plagisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week. <laughs>